This episode of The Tome Show is brought to you by listeners like you. Thanks for becoming patrons at patreon.com slash the tome show. Welcome to The Tome, a D&D news, reviews, and interview show, and I'm your Tome host, Jeff Greiner. And I'm Tracy Hurley, and in this episode, number 359, we're going to run away from reimagining of classic D&D monsters as we discuss flea mortals. We're going to run towards 4th edition. Sorry. (laughs) Spoilers. I've been having a bit of a a sore throat uh, lately, so you get get gravelly, sexy Jeff voice tonight. (laughs) Overnight DJ. (laughs) <laughs> you mean sexier, Jeff Voice. Oh, <laughs> it's the Tome Show After Dark, everybody. <laughs> All right, joining us in this conversation is a veteran team of monster hunters. First up is our soldier, wading into combat and valiantly taking the hit so that we don't have to. It's Ishmael Alvarez. Glad to be here. And next up is our party artillery, firing shots from a distance with deadly precision. It's Jared Rasher. Hi. <laughs> uh, today we're talking about Flea Mortals uh, by MCDM Productions. Flea Mortals is a monster book that was kickstarted back in 2022. It's a reimagining of classic D&D monsters and adds some new mechanics to your fifth edition game. Uh, it's worth noting that the lead designer of the book is James Intracasso, who longtime listeners may remember from back when he got his start in the game industry writing a blog and making podcasts for the Tome Show. <laughs> He's a friend of both the show and at least a few of us personally. And also, I'm at least working from a review copy of the book. And I also want to mention, we have other friends also in this book, right? Yes. Like, there's a lot of people <laughs> that yeah. uh, have been on the show or whatnot that, are, that have worked on this book. Yes, there are. So anyone else, what are we working from? <laughs> uh, I am also working from a review copy. I assume the same one that you are, Tracy. Yeah. Oh, I will say that I'm also working from a review copy. Um, I backed this, the crowdfunding campaign, but I also got a review copy sent to me about the same day that I got my <laughs> my copy from backing it. So Jer- Jared backs and or pre-orders everything, whether he gets free copies or not. So yep. <sighs> he is a strong supporter of the community. <laughs> All right. So, so we're going to get into it. Let's get into it. I guess, first off, I wanted to talk generally what your take on this book was. I kind of vaguely recall, I think Ish, you had mentioned this when we first started talking about planning this episode, um, that around the, let's call it the OGL fiasco of early 2023, uh, MCDM sort of responded to that talking in, in the vein that other companies were talking about creating fifth edition offshoots tales of the valiant or or um or completely making D alternatives uh before they they put it into the creative commons and mcdms as i recall um conversation around that centered around this book but this book is not a significant change to fifth edition D. is that Am I remembering wrong on how no, you're remembering correctly? Um, and it, you're right. Like it fits like this book slots perfectly into fifth edition, but it introduces so many ideas from fourth that I almost feel like it's this real sneaky change. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's less about changing the rules and more changing like the rule set, uh, like the approach to 
monster, like monster combat, monster like uh, uh, encounter building, uh, and so it's it's similar to what you were saying about how in this time period of newly announced but not yet out addition, uh, you see some really neat innovation, some really neat books come out, and I, I would say that this is similar, but obviously not from Wizards of the Coast. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's that kind of idea of like we're going to do something that's so different, uh, but that still works completely fine with the current edition. Yeah, I, actually, they they did have this um, in the works before the fiasco exploded. Right. Um, and I, if I remember correctly, some of that came from um, Matt Colville and the people at MCDM playing Fourth Edition and remembering a lot of the stuff that they liked in those mechanics. And kind of bringing those forward into, you know, what from this can we use with 5th edition? Mm -hmm. And the other thing is, is MCDM's other response to the OGL fiasco is, let's design a fantasy uh, role-playing game that isn't uh, uh, 5e SRD, which is what they're doing now. Um, This and then the revised Illrigger and the talent are going to be the last things that they do that are based on 5e SRD rules. And then after that, it's all going to be their own proprietary stuff. According to current plans. Yes. I have seen companies make yeah. that effort before and then change their mind. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Which is, you know, and, good luck to them. And I hope it works out because more games in the mm. world is, is a better thing for everybody. Tracy? One of the things that stuck out to me. So I started with 4th edition and, one of, and I started within like a few months of starting to play fourth edition and that was the first time i played dnd i started dming and one of the things i loved about fourth edition to a lot of degrees was that it made it fairly simple for new dms to think through encounter design and it the rule set doesn't necessarily mean that all the stuff you learned for fourth edition could easily come over to fifth in terms of uh you know most of the time in fourth you had the pacing of an encounter took about an hour uh and so you planned around that and fifth is is less like that um but that idea of you want different types of uh creatures or 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 monsters that have like the skirmisher and stuff like that which i'm sure we'll talk about even more in depth later um having that sort of mixture to to bring stuff to the the party i thought was really great and we've been talking a lot about the fourth edition um roots to some of the changes but i think it also bears mentioning right away the mike shea type uh a lot of the stuff that he's created over the years to help you create your encounters and quickly reflavor things and stuff like that's heavily like in this dna for this book yeah i think it's interesting because if you've seen what they're going to do with tales of the valiant and what they're using for their encounter building rules it's exactly what's in this book because those both come from mike shea (laughs) <laughs> yeah in fact i i'm trying to remember uh we chatted briefly about i think it was this book with mike when he when we did uh behind the Demon screen a couple mm-hmm. weeks ago and he and i mentioned to him yeah no, no so we're, we're working on our, our discussion for for flea mortals i see that you worked on it. he's like oh yeah it was weird I, I was looking through it myself and i'm like wow this uh this encounter builder stuff looks almost exactly like the stuff that i wrote wait a minute, I think I wrote this. <laughs> and he, he, he had forgotten what he had worked on. So. 
Yeah, and like even this idea um, that though a good portion of the books, like these, like you're saying, the encounter, like there's the encounter building, and then there's these uh, places that you can drop in to your game uh, with uh, creatures and and a lair mechanics and all of that already built in. Yeah, no, and I, so so I, I don't. We keep talking kind of around it, but I don't know that we've outright said it. Um, this, the the way I've been thinking of it is that this book feels like. Uh, the folks over at MCDM uh, and our friend James, who who was the lead designer on this, um, looked at fifth edition, the fifth edition monster manual, and said, "Yeah, but but what if they had written that with more of an eye towards learning lessons about what worked in fourth edition instead of mm-hmm. focusing on not trying to make it look too fourth edition ish so that the yeah. fourth edition haters avoided it, you know? Yeah. So because, if we use something from fourth edition, we have to bury it under layers so that nobody realizes that we brought it from fourth edition. Yes. Because ultimately like people, you're all right. Like fourth edition, it had its flaws, but it also had a lot of really innovative, good ideas mm-hmm. that, some of it made it into fifth edition and some of it didn't and stuff like this, the monster stuff that, that, that they put in to flea mortals, I feel like was them saying, you know, really, if they were being, if they were embracing the good things from fourth edition and bringing it into fifth edition, it wouldn't have been that horrible to do. And it would have elevated and, and and made combat and, and the monsters a lot more interesting and easier to use. Um, you know, and specifically like, the monsters mechanically basically work the way you're used to them working in fifth edition, but they've, they've tweaked a few things, right? Some of the things that really stood out to me and, and, and I noticed this um, when the fifth edition books came out and especially when I was, as I was looking at third party fifth edition books, I'm like, have, have we been, have we always dealt with like random spell lists in the middle of a, of a, of a monster stat block? <laughs> like it's so obnoxious. I hate seeing spell because now I've got to have, if I'm using physical books, I've got to have 15 different pages open because mm-hmm. I, um, you know, or, or it slows my combat down. Oh, they've got this list of spells. I got to go figure out which spell this monster is going to cast. Oh, well, okay. Let me look this one up. No, not this one. Now I got to go look up another one because the first one I looked up didn't, didn't do what I wanted to do or, you know, whatever. So it just, it just, or if I'm doing it digitally, I've got to have 15 tabs open so I can switch back and forth and find it's a huge pain in the ass. Um, and I, and I couldn't, remember if fourth edition had done that or not but i knew all, all the other editions had and i know fifth <laughs> edition does and it drove me crazy and i and, it, and i think i gave uh, a kobold press book a really hard time because of making me look up all those goddamn spells um, <laughs> because it was the first time i noticed it in the fifth edition stat blocks before i realized oh no that's just standard again um Lee Mortals is saying, let's not do that. Like, there are spell lists, but it's like the utility spells. It's not the combat spells. Yes. Um, they were kind of ahead of the curve for what Wizards is kind of doing now. to kind of do a little bit, yeah. Yeah. Wizard, um, but Wizards, one... Wizards found a middle ground. They're, they're not quite here, but they're getting there. What I like that they did here is what I wish Wizards would have done. Because in this instance... When let's say you have a, an orc, you know, uh, bard that is supposed to inspire people, and they want something to count as a spell, it's not necessarily the text of a spell. It does something really simple in combat, 
But then in parentheses, it will tell you this is a second level spell. Right. It's not in the book as a spell, but this counts as a second level spell. And that means if somebody wants to counterspell it, it counts as a spell and you can counterspell it. And it doesn't create the uproar that some of those stat blocks that Wizards introduced, which was, hey, none of the NPC spellcasters now can be counterspelled because none of this counts as spells. It's right. just magic stuff from their stat block. Right. No, that's and that's the thing that I've run into in, in my games quite a bit. It's like, oh no, that's not a spell. It's just a it's just a magical ability that they have. So you mm-hmm. can't counterspell it. Ha ha ha, you know? Well, that's kind of lame, because that's not the, the the spirit of how counterspell works. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I like that they make sure to, you know, if something is supposed to be a spell, it says, you know, this counts right. as a thir- third level spell. And it's and um I mean that was one I believe I I interviewed James about this for um for the Gnomecast, and that was one of the things that we were talking about is you know how that caused some issues because I understand simplifying the stat block, but sometimes there are knock-on effects that you have to take into account, you know, for that, you know, one step further beyond just simplifying the stat block. Right. And, and as a result of doing this kind of stuff, the stat blocks do tend to be a little beefier than you're used to seeing for fifth. You know, they're, they're, they're bigger. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't mind that personally. Uh, but I know it's not as small and sleek as, as especially some, if you're used to first and second edition where stat blocks were like literally, you know, <laughs> uh, an inch or two on, on a page for a lot of cases. Um, it, it's a, a departure from that. The other, like, yeah, it, was, oh, go ahead. it was an inch or two, but you also had to, you know, roll your own hit points because it only said, you know, three hit dice to make sure that line was tiny and <laughs> yeah. The other thing, now, it borrows other great ideas from 4th edition as well, but the other thing that I really liked that it borrowed from 4th edition is the idea of roles. Uh, mm-hmm. Creature roles, right? Um, there are more roles than I remember 4th edition having, but the idea that, you know, I can, as a DM, I don't have to read through the stat block in detail the, in the moments before an encounter begins, to figure out, okay, this is how I need this monster to function at this in, in this encounter, right? I can just look at it at a glance at the top of the stat block. It says, oh, this is a skirmisher. This is a soldier. This is a, an artillery. This is a controller. And that gives me a little cheat code to more quickly assess how I should be using this creature in the battle. Uh, and as a DM, that is, I mean, it's a, such a minor, tiny thing, but it's also huge. I mean, there's a little bit of lag anytime you look at a stat block and, you know, let's say you see just a stat block that says orc and they have a ranged, they have a ranged attack and they have a melee attack. And, you know, for a you know brief minute, you're sitting here going, okay, so do orcs usually attack at range and let people close on them? Do they charge into the fight? And there are things if you read the stat block more, okay, they can charge, you know, as a bonus action, and everything. But it doesn't tell you right at the top, these things are meant to run into battle. These things are meant to stay back and shoot at things. And having that thing saying this is artillery tells you all of its abilities are going to be optimized for them staying back and shooting at things. Right. Well, and, and, I, and I, there's a point where I get why. Like, it's it's the more simulationist uh, approach of, of maybe mm. third edition or second edition uh, where it's like, well, orcs could do either. And we want to build a stat block where you could use an orc to run up and, and 
beat things with their axe, or they could stand back and shoot with their arrows, or some of them could do one and one, some could do the other, or whatever, right? You want to have some versatility because real people in real world situations have versatility. In different situations, they might use a different strategy. I get that. But this is easier to run at my table, and thus it's more fun for me to play, <laughs> you know? Uh, <laughs> being able to... Um, and, and, and as a result, they have, you know, they might have the orc that runs up and charges, and it and it's very clear for me looking at their role that that's what they do. Um, and some of them, but then they might have multiple stat blocks, like fourth edition did, right? Where there's mm-hmm. where there's five or six or twelve different orc stat blocks, and each one fills a different role. And it's like, oh, I can just sort of pepper these in, uh, you know. If it becomes important, if they become a long-running NPC, I can just explain, you know, oh, well, they can do both, but this is what they did in that encounter. I only need the stat block that's simple to run for that encounter, and then I can change it next time you run into them, you know? I mean, because, like, if you just say there's 12 orcs and and you're in a rush or, you know, you're not someone who has six hours each week to prepare you're going to put 12 orcs in the middle of the room or something. You're not going to break them up. <laughs> Whereas if you say there's four or- archers and two brute, like brutes, you're going to put that out and describe mm-hmm. it differently. So it gets kind of interesting. Uh, it's good to break it up like that mm-hmm. for sure. Um, and then how did you feel about the solos and, and, and stuff like that? Like, I guess that was one of the types. Yeah. Um, I haven't run any of the solos yet. I'm interested to see how they go because even in fifth edition, and I really do like um, legendary actions, but even some things that have legendary actions, if the, if the dice roll falls the wrong way, you know, you're not doing a whole lot with that thing. (laughs) Yeah. No, I, I like the idea of bringing solos back. I thought solos were a fun thing to do in that fourth edition had uh having the big bad monster it does um it has been difficult in in 5e uh and it can it can be and it could have been it was in fourth edition as well in fact stunning abilities were even more common in, in fourth edition where if you only have one thing then then you know the monk in the party can just stun lock him every single round until and so they never get to do anything for multiple rounds on end um now Solos in 4th edition had legendary resistance. They could just say, nope, I'm just going to make that save now. Uh, Scipio in the chat is pointing out that that they've actually added some interesting little silver linings for those kinds of things, right? So the PCs still get a little something, right? An effect ends or something happens when the solo creature uses their legendary resistance. The DM can say, nope, I make my save, but it's not quite as disappointing as it was when the DM would do that. And it's just like, okay, then it doesn't matter. I don't know why I used that spell because I got, got nothing out of it, right? Because mm-hmm. the DM could just choose that I got nothing out of it. Um, so that was nice. Well, and you mentioned legendary actions as well. One of the things that always drives me crazy about legendary actions is remembering to do them, right? My, my powerful creatures are really bad at being as strong as they should be because I always forget to use the legendary actions. And I like the the little this is not a fourth edition thing uh this is just a new mechanic they introduced in in this version of these monsters where they have the what they call villainy actions or something like that yeah villain actions yeah villain actions and i really like that it, it they only get one uh the, the creature only gets one per turn 
And so I don't have to remember that I can do two, three, whatever, however many legendary actions at different points, depending on what they're doing and whatever. Uh, and they can only do each villain action once and then it's gone. But they also lay them out specifically in order so that it, it so it's it's a suggestion. You don't have to do them in that order, but it's like a this is the, the first round villain. Mm-hmm. Action. This is the second round. And, and you can really build some interesting like like villain drama, like like pulp era or superhero style, like villains sort of doing a special signature thing on different rounds and building up the drama as you go. And I found that to be a really interesting mechanical idea. Yeah, I also, um, it's interesting when you look at how some of them are built because sometimes like say the second one is going to get them some reinforcements and then the third one is just going to be the big like, I'm going to level everyone so that they get pushed back and they have to come to me again. So there is an interesting flow to how a lot of them are written too. Mm-hmm. Ish, you've been nodding and pointing a lot. You have thoughts? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I, I didn't want to step on anybody's toes. Y'all are making really good points, which is why I'm pointing. Uh, that's a pun. But uh, the idea of a villainous action, I think, is better than legendary action because legendary action is like here's an extra thing that's that a monster can do, a boss monster that's just extra. Whereas the villain actions, it's they're cinematic. And I, I remember watching the video uh, that uh, Matt Colville did on like let's make monsters interesting, let's not just make them stat blocks, but like have the things that they do matter in a kind of uh. Uh, in a way that's kind of, it tells a story. It's not just, you know, extra stuff. And it's, you can see it here, and it makes sense for a solo monster to have a sequential order of things that kind of escalates, if not in potency, then in the story that it tells. So, um, you know, maybe one round they call in reinforcements, another round they ask all of those reinforcements to make an extra attack, or, you know, whatever. But there's this sequence that uh makes it matter where um when you're doing what layer actions for instance or legendary actions for a standard monster um you're just kind of like which one did i do did i do that that one last time okay this one seems like it'd be fine whatever uh and you're not really thinking about um why are they doing it like why is someone using the specific layer action other than that's the one that comes next because i didn't do that one yet uh, versus this, there's this like kind of uh, metered, uh, measured kind of way of doing it in the way that this book is doing it. The other thing I would argue too is that some legendary actions are not nearly as useful as other ones. And mm-hmm. you can see that, like, you could take two CR8 things that have legendary actions, and one is going to be like, oh, this is great. This is really going to challenge the player. And another one's going to be like, oh, they can move five feet on their right. So they are not built equally either. They get another claw attack. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's cool, but it's not evocative. Yeah. Yeah. And moreover, giving them a claw attack as a legendary action is going to make their claw attack weaker because then they're making six of them instead of what two or whatever. But yeah, it's, it's, I, if if um, the new edition, whatever it ends up being, does one thing, I hope that they fix legendary monsters because this makes me reconsider their them entirely. Like I'd rather do it this way. Yeah, absolutely. 
uh, any other fourth editionisms that made it in and make these monsters better? I can think of at least one other that we haven't talked about, but it wasn't high Minions. up on the priority list. Minions. That was the one. <laughs> they, they reintroduced minions. Tell us about I, that. I, I just say that because for um, I run a game on monthly on Saturdays for my daughter and her friends. And um, these are all people that are in like their late 20s, early 30s. They wanted to get into playing D&D because, you know, it's the hotness now. Mm-hmm. And I probably sounded really old saying the hotness. But um, <laughs> what I've been doing a lot with them is using the minions that were in the playtest packets for this. Because it's really nice to have one or two monsters that actually are kind of dangerous that I know are more dangerous but also have like five or six other things around them that can swarm in and take some time and burn out some of their attacks, but also make them feel like they're doing this amazing stuff. Like last time we played, I had an Allop show up, but it had a bunch of shades, which are, um, you know, uh, CR one minions. Right. And they freaked out because they see, you know, all of these shades surrounded, you know, surrounding this, uh, Allop. Mm-hmm. But the, min- the minions, they were cutting through left and right. But it, it, that initial impression is that, you know, there's a do- dozen of these shades that rise up around this Allop. And, you know, it really felt like, you know, they were in the Shadowfell, like, we are so screwed, everybody. And then it felt like a victory when they finally cut through all the shades and get to the Allop and cut that one down. Right. Yeah, I have. It's a great it's a great opportunity to bring back the Skittles and the M&Ms. Uh, <laughs> but they did one thing with them. I know how Tracy <laughs> feels about Skittles. <laughs> yeah, that's what I get paid in. That's right. Um, <laughs> Once. <laughs> so, but but on top of it, like, so one of the big things always uh, with fourth was well, not always, but often with fourth was uh, you know players would be afraid of using a big attack and not realizing it's a minion, mm-hmm. uh, and they do have some stuff in here to help with that fear a little bit in terms of the I forget the term for it, but the carryover if you make a big enough attack against the minion, you sometimes can take out additional That's ones, right. which is really nice. Yeah, it, it it doesn't give you great cleave, but there's a mechanic that basically allows you to great cleave. If you do enough damage to a minion, you can mm-hmm. keep swinging and hit another minion and slice through a bunch of them Conan style. That's true. I didn't even think and have lots of M and M's all at once. <laughs> I didn't even think about that, but that's because I was going to ask the question to Jared, who's used these minions. Do do you do you tell them ahead of time? Because I could totally see you, the first time I use minions, not saying anything, and then after that, giving a head heads up so they don't use their once a day fireball on a bunch of minions. You know? Yeah, I mean, the, the, this group has only gotten up to about third level so far, okay. so I haven't been too worried about that. Although, you know, I thankfully the paladin didn't try and smite them. I probably would have brought that up, you know, if she was going to burn one of her smites on them instead of the Allop. But um, I will if I feel like they're going to say, like, even if only to say these do not seem like they're worth you doing that, you know, just to let people know. But I mean, it does say in the book you should let people know that these things are minions if it's going to matter how they're going to uh, how they're going to interact with them. Um, I love that this is very much like fourth edition and we're not just talking about like first level minions, like, you know, the shades that are, you know, challenge rating one, there are giants in here that are minions, which I love. And I would have loved for storm Kings thunder. Um, you know, there's a whole range of different hit points. And they also give you a chart that tell you like how much damage the minion should do and how many hit points it should have. So if you really wanted to scale up those, 
you know, those uh, shades and use them as fifth level minions, you can do it really easily with that chart too. Scipio's yeah. pointing out, you can just tell them all that, that the minions are wearing red shirts. <laughs> that's the, that's the clue. Um, yeah. And although one of the things, um, like they did make a tweak to minions. They're not exactly the same as they were in other than the great cleave concept, mm-hmm. they're not exactly the same as they were in fourth. Uh, and in that, in that they have hit points in fourth edition minions were just creatures that always had one hit point, regardless of, you know, what CR they were, how, how tough they were supposed to be. They always had one hit point in this case, they might have more than one. They tend to t- still have very few hit points. Um, well, it, basically, the minion trait means that if you hit them yes. with an attack, they die. Yes. So the hit points don't matter. The, but if you exactly. hit them with a spell and yes. they fail their save, they die. If they make their save, they have hit points. And if you do enough damage with the spell and you go over their hit points, they still blow up even if they made their save. I I also saw it as... A, a fix for like the sleep spell when you're fighting 15th mm-hmm. level minions, right? It's a 15th level minion. It, you shouldn't be able to cast a, a simple sleep spell and knock yeah. out a whole army of them because they all have one hit point. No, no. Yeah. They, they have way more than one hit point. So you can only get a handful <laughs> of them maybe with that sleep spell, but... Um, yeah, they're your as army as of frost do, giants. Right. As soon as you do one point of damage to them, it drops... Uh, you just knew that that happened once and that's why that rules there yeah. and, and, and yet it makes sense mm-hmm. it's something they totally could have done in fourth edition without any hesitation um but they never quite did and and mcdm fixed brought in minions to fifth edition and then fixed them and made them even better so <laughs> any other fourth editionisms that make it into flea mortals because there's some non-fifth edition or fourth edition things that they changed as well that i'd like to talk about um well, the only thing i would point out is just the variety of creatures so they put in um just different kinds of things that do exist in the monster manual for the purposes of there being monsters that fill roles um and so it's like obviously the roles are there but like that variety you don't just have orcs you have like five different kinds of orcs you don't just have alligators you have an alligator that scales up uh pun partially intended but uh that was something else I noticed. yeah no that's true uh and it's one of the things that that i really like the fourth edition but it does take up more space right and so i imagine because because it's worth pointing out uh, i think we mentioned this early on the purpose of this book was not to give you here's 300 more monsters or whatever, right? It was to give you a replacement for the existing monster manual with new takes on classic monsters, on on the monster manual monsters, which means I am certain, I didn't count and and go through and check, but I am certain there are significantly fewer monsters in this book than are in the monster manual because they they have five to ten stat blocks for orcs or whatever, right? Yeah, there's not an analog for everything even that's in the uh, SRD in here. Uh, yeah, I don't know about the SRD. I could only find one creature in here that I don't think there's an analog to in the Monster Manual. Um, in most cases, it's pretty explicit. Like, here's an orc, there's an orc, right? We have kobolds, we have goblins, and kobolds and goblins that also don't feel like they're basically the same creature with a different skin, which is mm-hmm. kind of how fifth edition kobolds and goblins look, um, yeah. mechanically. Um, but 
and there were some areas where clearly there were legal reasons that they probably couldn't just say, <laughs> look, here's a beholder. So instead they have uh, their creature, which is clearly a beholder stand-in, but instead of its eyes on eye stalks, it's all just sort of embedded into the body, um, you know. But there was a bunch of those. I only saw one creature that I couldn't be like, oh, this is their take on this classic D&D monster. The rest of them I was, I think, pretty well able to identify. I don't know what you're talking about. An overmind is clearly just an orb that has detached eyes floating around it. Yeah. I don't know how you think that's the same concept as the old. Right. <laughs> right. There were a few that I had to think about. There was one that I think is mind flayers, but I was never. I, I yeah. Never um, deep enough to find out the, the voiceless talkers. Yes, that sounds right. Yeah. Um, the, it's interesting because a few of them are kind of flavored by what Matt does in his setting. Mm -hmm. So you do have some of these things that come from the astral plane that have just flat out lasers and, you know, ray guns and stuff like that, which is not like the default no. for, you know, <laughs> yeah. what mind flares have well, in D&D. &D. And, the, and the one thing that I think is entirely new was the Time Raiders, which is a, an, a, a, a Matt, uh, I, uh, Matt Koval. Thing. I think they're kind of new, but they're also kind of Githy Yankee. A little, I guess there's a little Githy Yankee to them. Yeah, yeah they have four that. arms, though, so they're distinct. And, and Mohawks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They've all got Mohawks for whatever reason. <laughs> um, Scipio says they are, in fact, Gith. That's that's his take. So. <laughs> um, okay. Any other four isms that we see here? Can we talk about other things? All right, let's talk about other things. I I mean, there was a bunch of other things that they introduced, but there were two other things that really stood out to me as, as really interesting and, and that I really enjoyed. Um, one of them is the the rules for companions. So there's a lot, you know, the, all these stat blocks. Some of them have little companion stat blocks. So if you're, if you, if you can train one or whatever, um, you can get them to, to be, become your pet or... Um, um what was the um like the the ranger beast companion uh sort of thing you know you can get them like that they're they're built to scale as you level up that some of their stats change a little bit here and there as your proficiency modifier change a lot of mm -hmm. uh things change uh but what really yeah the beast heart uh what really um sang to me with their companion rules is um is the what is it ferocity Mechanic. Yes. Um, the idea that um, the idea is that when your companion animal is surrounded by enemies, they become more and more wild and ferocious. Uh, and over every round, they add a certain number of ferocity points. And, and every what ten points or so, you reach a new ferocity level. Uh, and as you reach that new ferocity level, you have to start making animal handling checks, or else they just go wild and you lose control of them. And, and but at the same time, they also get new, more powerful attacks. So, yeah, you can spend ferocity to do powered yeah. up attacks. So you are simultaneously like you want them to get more ferocious because they get mm -hmm. more powerful, but you don't want them to get more ferocious because you might lose control of them. And I really like that's a really fun mechanic to me. And it, mm -hmm. it came to me like six months too late. I had, <laughs> I had a, a character in, in one of my campaigns that just desperately wanted to. Uh, uh, tame a hellhound in our Avernus game. Um, 
which is not a not an easy ask, right? Now mm-hmm. the player recognized that that his character doesn't even have any ranks in in animal <laughs> handling. Like this is not a thing that's going to go well for him. But the character really wanted to do it, and I had to sort mm-hmm. of figure out how to do it. And w- at what point would this hellhound inevitably betray them? Right. And I just sort of waited for, <laughs> waited for that moment. Uh, but if I had this, this, then I opened this book and it's like, oh, my gosh, there's a hellhound companion using these mm-hmm. rules that would have been perfect. And he would have lost control much earlier because he doesn't have the animal handling. But still, it would have been really cool. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, in my Thursday game, we've been using these. One of my uh, players has a uh, baby dragon companion. Oh. And to, the, the funny thing is, is. You know, you start making those checks once they get, you know, over 10 ferocity. Right. You have to have eight ferocity for it to use its breath weapon. So it's like you need to get right up close to that, uh, <laughs> to that overflow uh, point before it can use its breath weapon. Right. It's been a lot of fun. It's only gone berserk once and it wasn't too terribly bad because it just uses its baseline signature attack once it goes berserk. But it's enough to where, you know, like. That dragon just bit me. Scipio, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, who's who's our our champion of the of the chat room uh, for this episode, <laughs> uh, has pointed out that MCDM likes to do these sort of push your luck mechanics. Um, mm-hmm. I have not extensively used a lot of MCDM stuff, despite the fact that that uh, our good friend James always sends me everything. Um, <laughs> uh, I have unfortunately not have had the opportunity to use much of it for reasons that I will. I will discuss, I think, later on as we as we continue our discussion. So, I do think if you're gonna if you're gonna oh I'm sorry, no go ahead. If you're gonna if you want to bring up the um, companion creatures though, I think it's also worth bringing up the uh, retainers mm-hmm. well, because the retainer. Oh, yeah. I was gonna say a couple more things about the companions though. Uh, is that it's really intended one per party, right? So it's, yes. it's not. It's yes. not like everyone gets their own pet or anything like that. And then and then the other thing is, so it's kind of, a, I'll call it attuned to the caregiver. So the mm-hmm. caregiver is the one that can give it the commands. But in order for it to do some of those a- 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 actions like attacks, doesn't the caregiver have to give up their bonus action or something? Like there's, it adds complexity to what you're thinking of mm-hmm. um, in t- uh, as you're no. trying to... It's like a lot of the fifth edition summons. It takes its turn after yours, but yeah, but it says they can only take the dash, disengage, or dodge actions unless their caregiver uses a bonus action to command the companion to take a different action, including any of the actions noted in the companion stat yeah. box. So the caregiver so it adds some complexity because sometimes mm-hmm. you might not have them take one of those actions that would reduce ferocity, mm-hmm. um, but then you risk it going yes wild and attacking your your so it's, it if for, uh if there are folks that feel maybe that their fifth edition game is a little too simplistic and they want more thoughts on on how to strategize mm-hmm. and all these things companions are really good for that but we definitely should also talk about retainers well and, and, but, uh, on that note though it, it adds a little bit of complexity but i don't feel like it's adding complexity to the point that it's it's prohibitive uh, that level of complexity. I mean, no, no. It's just a little bit of... Yeah. Like, for the guess... people from 4th edition that miss the ability to, like, push characters around and line things up to work out really well, this is this might be a good way, like, to really think about creating this, this potential big awesome thing, or maybe it goes sideways and you lose half your party. I don't know. It could go either I, way. 
I think the main thing that has come up with ours is just remembering to uh, roll the dice and add ferocity every round. You know, so yeah. you have to get into that mindset where you remember, okay, it's their turn now, so they have to build up ferocity and and go then. But other than that, it hasn't been too bad. Um, and the sorcerer is our uh, caregiver, so she's, you know, in between blowing things up, she's been telling the dragon to eat things. <laughs> <laughs> So you, somebody wanted to talk about retainers. Yeah, retainers are um, not quite like companion creatures, but they are like you have an NPC that is sort of like a certain, you know, character class or profession that can travel with you and they get a signature ability and that signature ability can level up based on what level you are. Mm -hmm. So, like, they'll start off with just a regular signature ability, then they'll get one, like, at third and fifth and seventh. And it's really just a very simple way to say, okay, I have a retainer that is my wizard's apprentice. And you don't have a full stat, you know, a spell, you know, stat block or anything. There's just that signature ability where it's something, uh, you know, a, some kind of a magical attack that they can pull off. And, you know, they usually have that and then some other thing that might work, you know, once per day or something like that. And it's a very simplified way to have like followers or, you know, people like that, that you can assign to different characters and they have hit points, but you know, it's most of it is not very complicated. It's not in depth with, you know, going into like a full stat block. It's just enough that if they get hit with something, you know, their armor class, if they want to attack something, you know what they roll to attack. It's, it's a really stripped down one. And part of why I wanted to bring it up is they, originally introduced this in strongholds and followers mm -hmm. and in strongholds and followers they were trying to get away from using hit points so they had this thing where you would roll to save and if you failed the save when it took damage it would go up a level of being injured and if it took three levels of being injured it was out and honestly i thought that the dice mechanic rolling the save was actually more complex than just tracking their hit points sure. and apparently they agreed because this version of it just <laughs> has hit points well, whether they agreed or not, they, they apparently got that feedback from other people. Or enough of yeah. Them. Well, it, what's interesting to me about retainers, and, and honestly, a retainer is not a thing that I'm trying to add to my game more often. So so that's not a thing that really st stood out to me. I've done mm -hmm. things with retainers. It feels like trying to capture something that was a thing in like first and second edition. Um, Wizards also put out mechanics for fifth edition trying to sort of capture that same concept. Um, um, this is definitely simpler than those in, though. In a, in, a, yeah, <laughs> in, a, in a way that they were like you can build your NPC sidekick whatever uh, and here are some stripped down simplified less powerful classes that they could level up in as opposed mm -hmm. to this which is just a stat block that you, you tweak some, num some numbers over time um, so, I yeah. will say though if they had some of the adventures that Watsi has put out where you end up with these NPCs that join your entourage. If they were statted up like retainers, yes. they would be a lot easier to use in those adventures. Yes. Because it oh. would just be like, oh, Artist Simber does Ice Blast. You know, that's what he does on his well, turn. And that's, you know. I'm thinking about the first half of uh, Out of the Abyss where you have yes. a dozen different mm -hmm. uh, NPCs wandering around with you. If they were in like, uh, like retainers, that'd be a lot easier. You're right. Mm -hmm. Easier and yet scalable 
Like, because the pot yeah. is leveling up and the, and the, the NPCs aren't, you know? So, mm. True. <laughs> um, I will add, though, the, like, I, this is another thing I wish I had from a while ago. I may actually use it. I run um, one solo game, and uh, retainers and things like that are great for that. Now, the sidekick rules are great, but I don't want to be using that to, like, basically manage a whole other character if I just have this, which I may end up using. It's a little bit easier. It's a little bit more manageable. Yeah, I, I, and the reason I tend to shy away from retainers uh, or sidekicks or whatever is because I, as the DM, the last thing I need is another character to run, <laughs> right? I already have a whole Fair. world to keep track of. So I, I try to avoid those kinds of things, although I also really enjoy my uh, my time with Descent into Avernus, and I just... I've run it twice now, and I just sat out Lulu as as a whole class PC. You know, so <laughs> so I, I end up doing it anyway. But here we are. So, um, okay. Other things that are not fourth edition inspired that are mechanical additions to to Flea Mortals. I have one other that I really like, but I want to hear what other people have to say too. I am really happy with the animal section. Okay. And I am happy with the animal section because I have it drives me nuts when you look at an animal stat block and it is here are hit points in AC and they attack with claws. That is not how animals work. <laughs> like their animals do a lot of different messed up things when they attack prey. And this not only builds some of that into the stat block and it actually adds in some stuff that older editions did. Like instead of a bear just doing, you know, claw with their claw attack. If they hit with both their claw attacks, they do the bear hug, which is a thing they used to do in third edition, and they added that back into this stat block. Mm -hmm. But on top of that, some have like recharge abilities, so animals actually get to function like monsters, you know, where you might actually be a little worried about them. And on top of that, there is a table for a bunch of the different animals where you can customize it to be like if you want it to be this particular type of bird, for example, there's a bunch of different traits that you can pull one of those traits and add it to that animal and they have that extra ability as well and i wish that more animal you know i would i would buy a uh fifth edition bestiary that was just animals with actual neat you know real world inspired attacks and special abilities and everything so i really like the animal section in here right on all right so the 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 other thing that really stood out to me that I really like, and again, maybe it's because I'm running a campaign in, in hell right now, um, but the demons section and the, the new mechanics they came up with for demons, I thought really shined. Um, mm -hmm. they, they've got this, um, this soul eating mechanic uh, where demon, you know, devils may bargain with souls and use it as currency, but demons eat the <laughs> souls, which is, very in line with, with sort of our, our conception of, of demons, right? They're destroyers and they're chaotic and, and whatever. Uh, and what's more, they have special abilities that they can use that burn up the souls that they've eaten. And then as they, if they use up all the souls that they've eaten, they go into this, this sort of uh, savage state. Uh, was it Lethe or whatever they, they, however you pronounce it. Um, where they, they go into this savage state and all they can do is attack and try to eat souls. You know, they become these, <laughs> these just savage um, killers, right? Uh, and that is all such an interesting twist on demons that makes them stand out as unique 
um, in, in a way that, you know, demons for me, like I am a sucker for a blood war campaign, right? Um, <laughs> I, I, since second edition, I have loved my, my demons, devils, and Yugoloths, right? Um, but at the same time, after a, many, many years and editions of playing demons and devils and Yugoloths, uh, the demons do kind of turn into big bags of, of, uh, of hit points with, 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 you know, killer attacks, right? Um, because they're savage, because they're, they're, they're chaotic, right? Uh, they don't usually do really interesting things. But these demons do really interesting things. Um, the one thing that it does, it, this is where where my conversation starts to shift a little bit, is that the demons are an example of a situation where they kind of took a category of monster from the monster manual and then created whole new things and did not recreate demons in with unique and interesting stat blocks. Uh, yeah, that's kind of... That's kind of where I fell with that, too, because I feel I love the soul-eating mechanic, but I really wanted to see the soul-eating mechanic on a Merolith or a Baylor or something like that. Well, and on, and, and on one hand, yes, I'd want to see the soul-eating mechanic on the existing demons. Um, and yet, the Abyss is infinite, and there's oh, yeah. infinite varieties of demons, so having adding more <laughs> demons to my, to my library, I'm not going to complain about <laughs> However, I do kind of think feel like it's a little bit of a weakness to the book that that's the way they treated the, the devils and the dragons. Um, you know, the, the devils that are there are cool and interesting, but they're all kind of within the same sort of court, courtly theme. And if I'm not mm-hmm. running devils and, and needs a courtly theme, then there's nothing in here. This book adds nothing to devils for me. There's no yeah. mechanic and, like soul eating and, and well, no, there actually is though. Is all the all the devils have true names, and if you can find out their true name, it gives them a specific weakness that is defined in that stat block. Yes. Which again, I would love to see the existing devils like yes. Pitfiends have this applied to them. And I know they're they have some wonderful imaginations there, but this is this is one of those places where it's like, okay, these are great, but also if if we're going to replace a monster manual, I kind of want some of those classic demons and devils with these traits applied to them. And also the devils and and dragons also are what um, I agree with you there too. Like I like the idea that they went with unique dragons, but again, I would have liked to have seen like a blue dragon with some neat, you know, toys attached to it or a red dragon and not just the unique, you know, world killer dragons that they put in there right. which which they interestingly like each of those solo unique world killer dragons that they created are also clearly each of a different chromatic color mm-hmm. but they don't necessarily spell that out for you yeah and it's not as easy to pull that mechanic out and just shove it onto an adult blue dragon yes. <laughs> uh so yeah no they, uh, uh, those were my it, for those exact reasons like the the demons i can accept the fact that they're whole new not because i wouldn't like to see these mechanics brought into those to existing demons i absolutely would but these demons function thematically similar to the mm-hmm. ones that exist so if i don't have the the classic demons uh i can use these and they function similar in my narrative fine uh but the devils don't function similar in in the narrative these de- devils 
fill a very specific thematic role. Uh, and if you're if you just need classic devils, you don't have a Flea Mortals version of classic devils. Uh, if you just want classic dragons, but with the Flea Mortals approach, you don't have that. You only have the CR twenty three or twenty five super killer uh, unique dragons. Um, so those are the that, those are the that is the one. Well, that is one of my two weaknesses for the book. Uh, and the other one is not unique to this book. It was a, a revelation I had uh, recently <laughs> while thinking about this book. But I can wait for other people to talk about other features of the book that they liked or didn't like. Um, that all kind of highlights one of the things that I thought looking through this book is wishing, like, uh, they weren't going to do the whole monster manual, but it would have been neat to see some kind of like a very short conversion document to say like okay if you want to convert an elemental maybe do this if you want to convert a dragon maybe do this and maybe that 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 could be a lot because i don't know what that would entail and that might be a little bit more of like looking behind the curtain of exactly how they did they went through all the design not everybody wants to do that for their monster manual you know they don't want to kind of uh, I'm sure you have the sausages made, so to speak, but uh, it could have been neat just to see, like, for every category, it's like, these are ideas for how you would make a monster that exists, but kind of move them over into the pathos of, like, what this book does. Well, and they actually did a little bit of that. Uh, there, there, are, there are sidebars in different spots that say, hey, by the way, if you wanted to use this stat block but make it into this kind of a thing or, or tweak it into a, an ice version instead of a fire version or whatever – here are some abilities you could throw in there and tweak it, whatever. I almost wonder if you, they couldn't have put together a almost like a third edition style template. You know, take this template, apply it to one of the, the monster manual monsters from the monster, you know, or, or whatever, from wherever monster bestiary, the, the Tome of Beasts from Cobalt Press or whatever. Take it to a standard sort of fifth edition monster stat block and you can apply this template to make it this interesting Flea Mortal style um, creature. There is something nagging at the back of my brain too. I think there may have been an issue of Arcadia that did have like a generic, if you want to add the soul eating thing to general demons in there, but it wasn't in here. <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't like the neat customized things it was just a general like they get back more hit points if they eat a soul or they get back you know yeah now the and the uh speaking of things that i wish they they could do right uh or had done the, uh, it occurred to me while reading this book and i went to twitter and, and tweeted about it at one point and james saw it um which doesn't mean anything but um <laughs> It occurred to me that the, the the one thing that really hinders my use of third-party books is that I have come to really enjoy using D&D Beyond for managing my encounters. Um, because if you use the Encounter Builder, even though it's been in beta for five years, uh, if you use the Encounter Builder, it, I can have my initiative order built right there in the Encounter Builder, and I can just click on whatever creature's turn it is or whichever creature is being attacked and it pops up the stat block for me and I don't have to flip pages. I don't have to, to prep all that ahead of time. Uh, and that has been a killer feature for me so that when there is something in a third-party book, I have to go through and homebrew and rebuild that creature uh, from scratch. And that's kind of a pain in the butt. And when I do, I end up just copying and pasting and I don't put in the code to make it so that it's just rollable. 
uh, which isn't ideal, but it's fine. And you know, that means I get to use real dice instead of clicking um, virtual dice or whatever. Uh, but it occurred to me, one thing that would make it be killer for these uh, third-party publishers, if when, when I buy the PDF of Flea Mortals, give me a PDF of just all the stat blocks with the D&D Beyond code. So then I can just copy and paste it straight into the homebrew and it's done and it's ready to go. And that would be killer. And, and knowing the work that James has done on like Roll20, it kind of it, converting Watsy stuff into, into a digital format and the code that's necessary to make it work. Uh, I know it's something that he's familiar with uh, and, and I could totally see him doing you know, if they thought it would be profitable as a company. <laughs> so I, I was going to say it might be doable, but you also have to worry about someone doing that and then marking it as open, you know, public. Yeah. And the unfortunate reality is that um, a lot of stuff that gets, um, well, honestly, I guarantee people have put the entirety of Flea Mortals into D&D Beyond's homebrew system and, and searchable anyway. Now, a lot of times D&D Beyond will flag that and pull it from being public. But the reality is when I start go to put in a third-party publisher monster, the first thing I do is to search to see if somebody else has already done it cause, just because it's time-consuming. Uh, and, and I think a lot of third-party publishers have, uh, you know, uh, I use, I'm using the Book of Fiends from Green Ronin in my Avernus game to add a little variety to my Demons and Devils. Um, and there was a time a year ago that I could s just do a search and find almost all of them. Um, and yet, in the last month or two, suddenly I can't. So s clearly somebody has gone through that, that book and, and flagged them. But, well, Green Ronin and Cobalt Press have enough of a fan base to make that happen uh at this point uh at least as of last weekend when i was making characters for the upcoming campaign with my kids um i could go through dnd beyond and pull up uh, uh race races from caesar vidari uh, and just mm -hmm. pull them straight that way you know tribality doesn't maybe have the the following and people to, to sort of flag those and get those pulled down yeah i i am in a similar boat with using roll 20 which is you know like when i want to use third party things i really really hope that they end up putting out a roll 20 version of it so that i have that added functionality if i really like a monster i will still you know i will input it into roll 20 but i would rather not have to cut and paste all of those things and you know make sure that everything works i'd rather just you know <laughs> pay a few extra bucks and say here i now have all these monsters in here Given that they've been putting Arcadia issues up on Roll20, I would not, I, I'm expecting this to probably make it onto Roll20 at some point in time. Yep. But it won't make it on D&D Beyond. No. <laughs> so, unless Wizards suddenly reverses course and decides to completely change tactics and allow third-party publishers to put things on D&D Beyond, I don't anticipate that we will ever see those things. So, yeah, well, that, so but but that was a little maybe work, someday work loophole I came up with. Uh, yeah, that, that could kind of be a middle ground. At least make it easy mm. to just copy and paste things. You know, don't even <laughs> format it in a normal stat block. Format it in the in the the text boxes that you need to put in for DND Beyond. Which then, of course, DND Beyond could hose them by you know updating that section and and changing it, making it more user friendly, and then suddenly all their stuff doesn't work. But. In the meantime, I don't know. I'd pay extra for that, but I didn't pay for this book at all. So <laughs> what, do I, what do I know? <laughs> I see so many things on 5e SRD. 
um, that like even my stuff that I've published that I'm kind of surprised he doesn't just put little buttons on there that talks to Roll20. I think that would be a great functionality, but I mean, also that's probably a pain in the ass. So I could see why he wouldn't. And I'm sorry, I hope I didn't talk over. That's okay. Um, I was, there was just two things that I, uh, I was thinking of talking about, but um, one of them, I don't know much about the whole psionic section and, and what folks thought about including that in this book. I am. I, they have been including like psionic powers and detailing it in a few different of their products. And I'm not going to say I don't like them. I'm going to say that until the talent, you know, rules come out, which is going to be their class that uses these psionic rules. I just can't get into looking at them <laughs> because I am not a person that, that, desperately need psionics to function completely differently than magic which i know is not always true of some fans of psionics um but you know once once the class comes out i will look at it but just you know having power show up here and there and getting a little taste of how they work i just can't get excited about them yet well and i think a little bit of what's happened is is mcdm has definitely decided to put some eggs in the psionics basket uh, and mm-hmm. so since they've made the decision to definitely do that, they included some of it here so that when they have a full-fledged psionic systems, it'll it'll work. Mm-hmm. I, I know I didn't see anything that doesn't work without knowing their psionic system or their rules. Everything that's there seems to work to me. Um, but I also didn't dig in too deep because even even Wizards has called a few things psionics, but they just work yeah. with spell effects. Well, I think like the stat blocks themselves, I don't think are hard enough to or too hard to understand how the psionic abilities work for a psionic creature. But there is a section where they kind of start explaining how psionics works as a concept. And it's like, I don't really care about it as a concept until I have a class to look at. <laughs> well, and for me, it confused me about what the book is. Like, I'm still not sure I fully understand what this what this book is like not in a bad way i just mean like unlike other types of books where it's usually pretty clear who the audience is and and, and what they're trying to do it felt like this big book of uh you know basically uh a reimagining of the lazy dm series with a bunch of other stuff in it and then at the end oh we're gonna add in some uh player character stuff so the players might be interested in in this book too mm. um and i think it's mainly just because the new creatures in here had things that had psionic abilities and so they could uh increase it out but it did lead me to be it felt weird there are sorry oh no i was just gonna say there are some quirks with how this book is set up because the first like two-thirds of the book is just a standard monster book you know you get things alphabetically even if there might be different roles for things well except you know except for that opening section which was uh almost a whole chapter on new rules and and right but but then you get to the part where there's still more new monsters but now instead of being alphabetical and in the bestiary they are grouped under the individual terrains that they show up in and on one hand i like that they give you layer actions that are tied to the terrain and not the monster 
-hmm. On the other hand, it is a little weird to shift gears from here's this list of monsters. Oh yeah. There's also some more monsters in this next section. Yeah. (laughs) You're right. I forgot about that, but that did drive me crazy. Like I want all of those monster stat blocks in the normal monster stat block section. You can then reference them and talk about them in that <laughs> section. Okay, these are the this is the collection of monsters that you will find in the big stat block section that would be in this layer, and here are the kinds of layer actions they can they can activate or whatever. That all makes mm-hmm. sense to me, and I like that. Um, yeah, but but the fact that like I mean, and and some of them were like different versions of things that we saw, like like there there were other demons that existed in the layer section that weren't in the demon section. It's like, ah, I'm not going to remember to look in five places. Stop doing that. Like, just tell me these are the demons that would show up here. It is a strange decision, at least from my point of view. Um, I like the concept that they're going to explain. These are some things that you would find in a cave, and these are some layer actions that function because of the cave and not the monster. Great. That's wonderful. I love that. But it's also weird that you took some monsters that could have been in the rest of the book alphabetically and put them in here. <laughs> Why do I have to find gnolls in two places? <laughs> um, and that's another argument for having it in some kind of an online searchable mm-hmm. database. Mm-hmm. Because then you could just bring up all the demons. Um, the, there was a bit of this book that made me think of like the monsters know what they're doing by Keith Amon in a different presentation. Mm-hmm. It's like, instead of just writing paragraphs about why this category of monster should behave this way, it's almost like you're just breaking them down into new rules and new categories that kind of fit slot into those behaviors. Mm -hmm. So that was another way that I kind of interpreted this book. Mm -hmm. I can see that. Uh, Especially with, like, the roles section, which which was very fourth ed. Uh, And I would argue that, that Keith... A lot of what Keith did with those books was um, was treat fifth edition monsters like their fourth edition monsters, and just sort of define those strategies and roles for you uh, in that book. So, yeah, absolutely. And then the other thing I wanted to just give a nod to is I, I did appreciate the content warning sections um, mm-hmm. for areas where there might be common things that might pick a player out or just make them uncomfortable and then also providing alternatives within it because it not only does it help like just um you know make it clear that um validate that these things do happen at like these types of things the situations do happen at tables and we we need to to change but it also helps provide some info to dms about you know maybe they don't know some of the things that might um need a content warning or like yeah. need some thought around so it's a good teaching tool too yeah like goblins can ride giant spiders but there is a disclaimer on them saying arachnophobia is a pretty common thing so check in on that yeah. before you have your goblins ride in on giant spiders <laughs> yeah i know uh, of at least one person that really appreciates that that call out <laughs> <laughs> all right any other last thoughts um there there is one other section that I thought was interesting, and that is they have villain parties in here. So if oh, you want a rival adventuring band, you have third, fifth, seventh, ninth, eleventh, thirteenth, and fifteenth level parties already set up in here that you can have if you are the type of person that likes to throw a rival adventuring party at your group once in a while. Mm-hmm. It's definitely a thing that um, 
fifth edition has been toying with, I think, in the last mm-hmm. year or so, right? You saw it a little bit in Witchlight and a little bit in the the Critical Role adventure. Um, mm-hmm. I forget the name of it right now. Um, so the, there's there's been some toying with rival adventuring parties. I saw them there. I don't know. It's definitely a section that's in there. <laughs> I I tend to like rival adventuring companies because a lot of the stuff that I liked in the realms was the fact that there are adventurers are a thing. You are not the unique people that go adventuring. It is actually a class of people. So uh, that's why I've always kind of liked, you know, those rival adventuring cards because it reminds you that this is a thing that people do in favor. And like, if they don't want to go into their parents' business, they might get a rusty sword and try and like go into the haunted halls of evening star and prove that they can be adventurers. The, The thing. So the, the, the rival adventuring party, the parties that are in there are the kinds of rival adventurers that I would use on as a one or two time thing, not like mm-hmm. ongoing long-term rivals because they don't scale. Right. Right. Um, right. If I, if I wanted rivals that were going to be around for a long time, honestly, I would probably do the thing that DMs shouldn't do. And I would just stat them up as, as PCs uh, and run them that way. And I've done it before and they tend to be a little more badass when you do it that way, but they're rivals and they're going to be around for a long time. So I kind of want them to be more badass. And that's that's actually a nice thing that they did in that Critical Role adventure because they do have them statted up at different points in their career. So you can do that as a an ongoing rivalry. Yeah. All right. Any other last thoughts? All right. Then we are going to go ahead and call that the end of the episode. <laughs> I do want to say thank you to our our guest panelists. For this episode, Jared Rasher, where can people go if they want to find out more about Jared Rasher? All right. Well, first off, um, you can find my reviews that I write for Gnome Stew at Gnome Stew, and you can find other neat articles there, too. And you can find my personal website where I do more reviews and commentary at whatdoiknowjr.com. And I am various places in social media, but I'm not going to remember any of them, and they might change by the time this episode comes out. So who knows? The social media community is in such a state of flux these days that who knows what's going to shake out, I guess. Yeah. Uh, before we we uh, find out where people can learn more about Ismail, uh, Scipio did mention his his last thoughts as well, and that is that the art is actually uh, really high quality. Um, it, it's, it's, honestly, it's honestly so high quality monster art that it didn't stand out to me, uh, much like the monster, <laughs> the monster manual art doesn't stand out to me. So, oh, well, that's just what a kobold looks like, right? Uh, and it is uh, some different takes on some of the creatures. Uh, yes, orcs look like Klingons. A little bit, yeah. Um, <laughs> I can see that. But none Green the, Klingons. But none of the art feels like... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be um, borderline derogatory to people who worked in the industry once upon a time, but they, none of it feels like third-party, third-edition uh, uh, books in terms of, you know, you're getting lower-quality art because it's third-party people and, and that's who they can afford to hire and whatever, right? I'm not disparaging those people, uh, but it looks like high-quality fifth-edition officially published art uh, in, in every way. They clearly had a budget for this. Mm-hmm. They did, yes. Yeah, because so. there's a lot of art. and Because I think they did the villain parties too, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. All right. Ismail Alvarez. Where can people uh, go to find out more about what you're up to? I am on Twitter and now um, Mastodon as Elven Wizard King. Uh, so you can find me there. 
I am on DriveThruRPG under my given name, Ismael Alvarez, uh, but you can find me uh, with Fat Goblin Games. I do a lot of work for them. And of course, uh, all four of us hang out on the Tone Show's Discord. Uh, and, yes. And that's where we're, we're recording right now. Uh, I also want to thank everybody out there listening to the show who supports us by being patrons, you, which you can join by going to patreon.com slash the Tome Show and contributing as little as a dollar a month. Uh, and that just helps me sort of pay the bills that keeps the show going. And as things build up every now and then, we can we can do some extra fun things with it, too. So, um, yeah. And if you'd like to contact us, you can send us an email, thetomeshow at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter and Blue Sky and probably some other places at Sarah Dark Magic or saradarkmagic.com with an H. I find Jeff on Twitter at Squatch, S-Q-U-A-C-H, and probably some other places. Yeah, I, I haven't gotten one of those Blue Sky invites yet, but uh, other than that, I'm, I'm most of the other places. Um, and you can find uh, The Tome Show at on, uh, on Twitter as well, at The Tome Show. Uh, and I appreciate that we're continuing to call it Twitter. <laughs> so, good job. I, I can't call it anything else no. because no. I didn't know. Um, absolutely. It'll, it'll, it'll end up being like, uh, what was it, 5th edition that Wizards <laughs> worked really hard? Like, no, no, it's not 5th edition. It's just D&D now. We're just calling it D&D. Okay, but everybody's just trying to call it 5th edition. So they eventually gave up. Uh, so far as I'm concerned. We, we had to tell... Huh? Somebody's got to tell them to stop trying to make X happen, like right. fetch happen, but it's <laughs> right. Oh, there's a there's a whole story. I think uh, I, I heard somewhere from somebody um, that Elon has been trying to make X happen for decades, uh, and it just had never. Quite yeah. Happened. So we'll see what happens. Anyway, we're we're going down all kinds of rabbit holes <laughs> as we wrap up the episode. I want to say this is the end. Uh, that that has been episode three hundred and fifty nine, where we teamed up with monster companions and defeated defeated hordes of minions. In this episode of I'm off the wall.